The Art Dealer Diaries are brought to you by Medicine Man Gallery, specializing in antique Native American art, early Western art, including the famed Maynard Dixon, as well as modern art. You can find everything online at medicinemangallery.com. There's over 6,000 objects to select from. Also, the Charles Bloom Murder Mystery Series, written by yours truly, me, Mark Sublett. These can be found on Audible, eBooks, Amazon, and of course, the gallery at medicinemangallery.com. I had Leroy Garcia on today. I've known Leroy for 30 years. You know, his trajectory and my trajectory are basically the same. He opened his gallery in Taos and then moved to Santa Fe and then at one time had a gallery actually in Scottsdale. And mine was Tucson, Santa Fe. And we share some of the same artists in our stable as well as I think kind of the way we do business is very similar as well. You know, we're pro our artist and we're pro Native American, Hispanic art. And, you know, again, Leroy's a, a mover and a shaker in the field. And I've always felt was one of the best marketers out there that he really had a tap, a sense of what needed to be uh, explored as far as uh, how you go about it, as well as just on who you represent in your gallery. And he's got his own podcast, which is the Blue Rain gallery podcast which i listen to and is a very interesting and unique podcast as well and it's primarily artic artist centric uh driven so i think if you want to learn about the art world from a gallerist standpoint this is a really good podcast for this kind of different than maybe any other one i've had because we really do kind of talk about what it is to be a gallerist and the things that you do and the problems that you have associated, uh, especially in this day and age of, you know, how do you represent artists when you're also dealing with, you know, Instagram, social media and, and ways that they can sell themselves. So, uh, I think you'll really enjoy this. I know I did Leroy Garcia from Blue Rain Gallery. I have Leroy Garcia from Blue Rain Gallery, the owner, CEO of Blue Rain Gallery. Welcome Leroy. Well, thank you, Mark. Pleasure being here. You know, this is a lot easier, isn't it, than you getting on a plane, flying a non-direct flight to Tucson and doing the podcast, because that's what you were going to do. Yeah, because I'm about the aesthetic. Yeah, well, you got my aesthetics behind here. <laughs> you got mine behind here. How old is this in your house? Yeah, nice. in my home. Yeah, who did the paintings behind you? Those are by Aaron Courier. Yeah, they're very cool. We're going to, yeah, those are nice. Yeah, perfect. Your head. She's really blowing up, and the last show did very well. Of course, uh, Tia Collection has has a strong interest in her work at this point too. So. Yeah, and tell me a little bit about her since you got the images there. Um, she well, I I started collecting her about twenty five years ago. Uh, she started showing in a coffee shop in Taos, mm. and uh, I thought it was really unique because it was all collage. It was like man, rappers from China and Taiwan and. Uh, South America, Central America, to to create imagery that was had social political dialogue to it. Uh, since that point, she's really refined herself, and she's created such a, a, a beautiful body of work over those years. But I, I probably own about 30, 30 major pieces of her. Oh yeah, you're just yeah, you're like me with Ed Mel. Yeah, one's not enough. You know, people don't get that, right? I mean, I've got artists who I have up to like fifty pieces of living mm -hmm. artists, and, and even more on deceased and you know, my clients often will say, well, I already have a piece. And I'm like, yeah, I got 40 of them. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, clearly you do the same thing, right? If you find somebody well, really, you know, I, really like. I, I, I like it, but I also follow the rules. You know, I don't I don't like artists that are over prolific. Um, Aaron, <clears throat> maybe 20, 20 uh, pieces a year. Oh, wow. Uh, a lot more drawings than that, but uh, not not like what you're looking at behind me. So you don't like to handle an artist that does say 75 pieces in a year? Um, I do handle artists like that and then, and they don't follow the same rules for some reason. I can, I can talk about Preston Singletary in that <laughs> format, but glass art is a whole different enchilada than say paintings. Yeah. But be, why is it that you don't want to ha handle somebody that produces a lot? Or are less likely to. It's not that you. Well, I think it's more special when people are putting more effort into their work than just whipping it out. Uh, it also talks about more to the innovation part of the equation. 
uh, when when somebody's trying to be innovative, you, you can't just whip it out. Uh, artists that are prolific usually uh, whip out a formula in a sense. Oh, that's interesting that you see it that way. Yeah, I actually don't see it that way. Which, I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it also, I think it might talk to how your artists and my artists are somewhat different, I think, in what we handle. And I don't think it really has anything to do with their prolific or not. But, you know, when I look at your artists, I do see a different stable of people that I assume really kind of comes from your taste. Oh, it totally does. I'm a very eclectic person. You come to the gallery, you see that right off the bat. Yeah, I always like that about it. Yeah. That's one of the things I must admit, I love going to your gallery because there will be people I'll go, wow, don't know who that person is. Really interesting, unique. I like it a lot. I wonder where that came from. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's uh, most of my artists, uh, 90% of them for the most part, uh, that are in a stable. I mean, because we handle collections, obviously, that don't follow its formats. But I, I always look for innovation, not imitation. And uh, I like you can look at landscape artists. There's millions of them. Uh, most of them paint just like each other. But how are you going to paint the same landscape in a different way? So that's what I look for. Yeah, you know, that's not unlike what I'm doing. But I instead of saying innovation, I look for original voice. Yeah, that's what I'm looking for. Yes, you know, and I think you kind of know it when you see it, whether it's a landscape painter or not. And you have landscape painters, right? And you have, and they are have a unique voice. There's no doubt. So tell me a little bit. You know, I I know a little bit of your backstory because I listen to your podcast. So let's talk about your podcast here, just so we let people know that you have your own podcast, which is the Blue Rain Podcast. Um, Right. And you, when does that? That's basically once a week. Um, no, it's when I feel like it. Um, <laughs> I want to do that kind of podcast. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to follow normal rules on that. Um, mostly, I, I do my podcast for education reasons uh, for my artists. Um, I've I've started interjecting collectors' viewpoints a little bit here and there, or people on the peripheral. Um, like I saw you uh, interviewed Laura Finley Smith the other day. That's a peripheral person. Or if I invite the museum people in. Uh, but for the most part, it's artists and their perspective. And um, but it, it, we really came to that point of view because of the shutdown of the state when we went through COVID. We didn't have a lot of uh, opportunities other than going to the virtual world to deal with uh, this education format. The magazines were <laughs> that's funny. Uh, magazines uh, lost their voice because uh, they've been distributing through the galleries. But when the galleries are closed, how are you going to get your voice? Yeah. So that's why we ended up going that direction. And as, has, how has that gone for you? What's been your experience on that? Um, it, it's been very successful. I, I don't know that I have the most listeners of all time, but the listeners I do are paying attention and and they're they're purchasing or commissioning workspace stuff of my podcasts. So you're ahead of me. <laughs> well, I think maybe, I don't know, why do you do podcasts, uh, you know, on your end? Well, you know, the whole thing was, this really it's the art dealer diaries the things that come through my life so you know it doesn't it's not um artist centric though it seems to have kind of become that way Uh, Mm -hmm. the original idea really was you know when i started it five years ago is i wanted to capture the voices honestly of a bunch of the dealers that i didn't think were going to be around and i want to hear those stories because i think what we do is important and especially in Native American art, especially in antique Native American art, a lot of those dealers are, you know, going every year. We have less of them. And it was it's a very interesting group uh, and culture that is so interested in Native art. So that was really that was really the reason to, to do it was to capture. It. And then it just but the whole thing was always, you know, the people that come through my life. So it could be something not even related to. You know, right. um, Western or well, native arts. I have to say, I do like the parts, especially when you're 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 talking about the art itself and educating people. Like, what is this type of pottery and blah blah the weavings and you know you're you're educating people and that's so important. Uh, and I'm glad you've interviewed a lot of the the older dealers because they are passing. Um, I I live with this every day, maybe not with the dealers because uh, I never dealt with a lot of dealers other than my direct relationships with artists. 
but my collectors, when I started, I was 23. Uh-huh. Uh, my average collector was late 50s. So imagine most of my major collectors have passed on for the same reasons. You just lose that knowledge. And Yeah, it's an odd thing, isn't it? You know, when you yeah. live long enough, you know, you, I've been doing this for, this is my 30th year in business and yours is pretty close to the same, isn't it? Yeah, we're, we're celebrating 30 years in February. Yeah, I can remember when you actually opened. Um, yeah, and yeah, it's a, yeah. so we're on the same trajectory. You're just a little bit younger than me, I think. Barely. Yeah. <laughs> Catching up to you, Mark. <laughs> yeah, catch up fast. So tell me, so like I was saying on the podcast, your podcast, I've heard a little bit about your backstory just from, because I do listen to your podcast. I enjoy them. Um, but you grew up in Taos, right? Yeah, that's my homeland. My, my family has been in northern New Mexico since the early 1500s, at least three of the four Spanish lines anyways. That's amazing. And you mm-hmm. can literally go back and... and uh, fortunately, my mother, you know, I was raised Mormon, and uh, obviously Mormons are great genealogists. And so the genealogies going back into Spain and, and beyond, uh, back into the 1300s. So I, I do have a good grasp of that part of the family. I also have a good grasp on, on my mom's side, which is... Uh, German and Welsh Irish, too, <laughs> which is she's gone back about that far as well. But uh, what interests me is the migration into northern New Mexico and why, and um, also the historic contributions of of my family to the United States as well as you know the Hispanic community and the Native community. And so, what were those contributions? So. Um, I have a very famous grandfather who ta- uh, heard me talk about uh, Bernardo Mira y Pacheco. He was commissioned by the King of Spain in the uh, early part of the 1700s to come to New Mexico. Um, I just did a podcast with uh, Victor Gustavo Guler, who's one of the top uh, Santeros in our area. And he, he probably knows more about my grandpa, but my grandfather was a very polished artisan, uh, but he was commissioned as an engineer. He came to New Mexico and made the first maps of the entire Southwest region, all the way up into Utah to California and down. Uh, he did the first maps of the Colorado Rio Grande, uh, did ethnological studies of all the tribes along the Rio Grande. And this is all around the 1700s. But you can find his some of his screens and his santos or his retablos uh, and bultos throughout Northern New Mexico churches. And um, in fact, one of the largest screens that he made in 1750 is uh, displayed at the Cristo del Rey Church at the top of Canyon Road here in Santa Fe. That That's on the, the Hispanic side. Um, What's that like that, to go in and see something that was made by your direct relative and still is in function and use? Well, it, it, that's an interesting question because, you know, as I said, I was raised Mormon and uh, my grandfather, obviously very very staunch Catholic. And uh, so coming to terms and uh, having appreciation for what he did and his contributions as far as bringing that art form in a refined way to Northern New Mexico uh, was a big deal. Uh, But it takes studying and and investigating. The the State History Museum actually did a a huge exhibit on him for a year and and published a book on him. For those who want to see, you can go to the uh, Museum Foundation of New Mexico or the State History Museum of New Mexico and uh, buy one of those books. Yeah, that's very interesting. So what, what, what your dad, was he from Taos as well? Yeah, my dad, uh, I was born in Taos. My dad was born in Taos. Um, some of the first families, the three lines came uh, by the 1515s, 1520s mm. uh, to Northern New Mexico into Southern Colorado, uh, San Luis Valley. And uh, but you really uh, have to ask the question why. And I, I I didn't even ask the question. The question was asked to me when I did the LA Art Show about uh, eight years ago. This gentleman came up to me and noticed my name was Garcia and asked me about some of my lineage. And I was telling him about my familial names and uh, and about the times they came to the states. And uh, three of those four lines uh, were crypto Jews. Um, and what's interesting too, if I if I went into my Spanish side. We're not even really Spanish. We're more French Jew than we are uh, Spanish. Have you done your 23andMe and seen what you're... I have done that too. <laughs> I, uh, now that we're all exposed to China with that, but um, yeah, that was interesting. I, I didn't realize how much Native American blood I had me, which is another story because 
Um, how I got there, uh, like I'm Native American, but I, I can't prove it because my I had a grandmother who was Navajo in the uh, mid to late 1800s who was tending sheep with her, her uh, brother. This is a story from her that's been passed down. Uh, but they were kidnapped by Apaches and then uh, brought and sold into uh, adoption. We'll call it. Yeah. Uh, Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's how I got with my grandma. So it was always a story until, you know, you do your DNA and you're like, wow, I'm, I'm 20 plus percent Native American. Yeah. Well, that makes sense, too, as far as the Navajo connection. There's a book out and you'll enjoy it because of your history by Matt Fitzsimmons, who just wrote about Bosco Redondo and the slave trade. Oh yeah, uh, and very interesting. The whole slave. Well, trip. blood and blood and thunder also was a good book that covered a lot of that. Yeah, that yeah, that was yeah, kind of more Kit Carson, but this was really just about Bosco Redondo, about the silver silversmith and the slave trade, and it was yeah up to twenty percent of the Navajo Nation was at one time captives of slaves, and I'm not even talking about Bosco Redondo. Right, it was before Redondo. Uh, Kit Carson was kind of at the last end. Well, the, the whole revolt area. That that whole point was the the territory was starting to be worried more and more about the Union coming in and stopping that trade, and that's led to that last revolt in a way. Yeah, I mean, Kit Carson actually had slaves, and yes, when he used his Ute um guides to capture help capture the navajos and canyon jay he actually uh wrote and said to his superiors you know we should allow them to have slaves the utes because that's what how they want to get paid yeah so yeah. i mean well there, that was very common a lot of people you know we romanticize uh part of that native culture but the natives in general prior to even spanish conquests were we're warring and doing all kinds of crazy things to each other. Yeah. And that's kind of sad, but nobody talks about it, but that's also an underlying truth. Yeah. Well, you're, this was your, probably your third great grandmother. So, yeah. Yeah. The, you, there may be some, and you may have already looked into it, but some baptismal records because they would always baptize the. Well, what, what they did was, so they, they would sell them uh, under auspice of adoption through the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church would just uh, give you a baptismal record and give you your your new parents. Right. So it, it it doesn't when you look at the line itself, you would never know that you know, Grandma was a Navajo. Yeah. You would always assume she was Hispanic. And what time would she have been around? Was this eighteen eighteen eighties? She was eighteen eighties to nineteen. She died in what forty uh, seven or fifty something like. That. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, mm -hmm. you definitely need to read Matt's book. You'll, you'll. I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's firsthand account from people that were at that time, and it oh, literally just sure. literally just came out. You would find it fascinating. So your dad was from there. Your mom was she was not from Taos. No, my mom was uh, burning uh, Alabama, um, <laughs> but she she like I say she's German and Irish for the most part or Welsh. Um, my mom and dad met at uh, BYU uh, in the uh, late '60s, and uh, away from there they went. He 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 dropped out of school, brought her back home to Taos, and uh, got a job at the Molida mine in uh, Cuesta. Oh wow! And that's how he raised. And so I'm I'm one of eleven. I'm the second oldest. And uh, it, this is a good fact. I always compliment my parents. But of the eleven children, all of us have a, we're all college educated. That's amazing, actually. Out of 11 children, that's impressive. Yep. That's really impressive. I have a, a brother who's one of the top people in CDC, and uh, they're brothers who are doctors like UMDs. And, uh, it just is an amazing family. It's, it's big, but good parenting. And he worked, and, at, the, he, he worked at the mine the whole time? Uh, for 20 years, and uh, they laid him off. But, you know, the, the mines in New Mexico have always been under duress uh economically um they finally decided to close the mine so they laid everybody off then he ended up working in los alamos at the labs for 20 years as a uh planner so he would do the engineering of buildings construction or deconstruction yeah better job too i would think <laughs> yeah well i don't know he, he feels more exposed to uh <laughs> some of the nuclear stuff <laughs> but yeah but he didn't move at that point he didn't go let's move up to los alamos he drove 
he drove all those years and I, I find myself doing the same thing. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, I, I live in Albuquerque, but I work in Santa Fe. Uh, been 20 plus years of that. Yeah. And why is that? Uh, schools. Better schools. Uh, yeah, I, I could live in Santa Fe, but, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, we, we had three daughters and uh, I just, I didn't want to drive all over Santa Fe looking for the best school. They're all over the place. I'd end up driving all day. So uh, I found a place here in Albuquerque where I had the the elementary, the middle, middle school and the high school within a three mile radius. Yeah. And they're top shelf in the state. So yeah, so you, you did do just like your dad. Your dad probably didn't want you to uproot you guys, right, right? And you didn't want to uproot your family. So as you're growing up in Taos as a kid, were you interested in art at all? Were you making art or any of that interest? No, I, I, you know, my parents every now and then. My mom was a painter, and uh, but just on the side, she's very good actually. <laughs> she could she could have been a professional, but. Uh, Every now and then they take us to the plaza and we'd look at some of the arts, but we we always associated that as like for people that had money, right? You know, we were, we were very poor, so I didn't really surround myself with that, right? So, but you and do you remember when you first, as a kid, started to notice art? Um, I really didn't pay attention to it, Mark, until I married uh, or uh, met Tammy. Um, I I was consumed and. Wanting to become a lawyer, and I was a pre-law major, uh, political science major, and uh, I remember losing complete interest in in college and just consumed by art. I think I read every art book I could find for like two years straight. Um, was that when you met point. Tammy? Is that when that? Uh, I had, yeah, I had just met Tammy, and uh, I I was helping her who um, sell her pottery, and I, I saw, this is frustrating, and I, I was like, I can do this better. And that all clicked in at the same time. And you're still in college. <laughs> I'm always in college, just yeah. like you. <laughs> so you're in college. You meet Tammy, Gar- who wasn't Tammy Garcia at that time. Tammy Kane, right. I guess. And uh, she's a, you know, at that point, she's just an up and coming potter. She's nothing, you know, as, uh, you know. How- well, that's, 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 that's the problem, Uh from what I saw from to compared to what, how the dealers were cheating her. Yeah. Uh, because how I saw, um, I always do comparative analysis. I'm like, well, who else is doing designing like this? This is really unique. Right. Maybe it's not refined yet, but the, the, the essence, the difference is there, the innovation is there. And, uh, so I, I saw that immediately. I, I could tell, I could see innovation immediately in, in any artist at that point. Uh, especially once you become educated in a in a medium, you you know right what good stuff is. And you're like 23 or so at this time. I was 23. Mm-hmm. What year would have that been? She was um well uh 1993 or so. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So right then at that point, because I opened my gallery in 1992, and um, I kind of started doing the pottery stuff about four years before that, but. In in that time frame, you were still in college when you met her. Yeah, and then you immediately you just about a year steps. about a year in I, I I took my last student loan <laughs> and I opened I used that funding to to uh, open up in my dad's house in El Prado in Taos, yeah. which was in North Pueblo entrance to Taos Pueblo. It was a thousand square foot room which I grew up in, and uh, it was vacated. So I was like, "Hey, Dad, I'm, can I use this?" <laughs> I, I built some stairs up there, and uh, away we went. And were you married yet at this point? Did yeah, you- yeah, I was married uh, in in uh, two two. Let's see, nineteen ninety. Yeah. Okay. So you've been married for like three, yeah. three years to her. About three years. You see the quality she has, the artistic ability. Then you start really getting into Pueblo pottery, probably at that point. And understanding yeah. how it's made, maybe being going to the firings and different things, right? Um, getting very immersed and involved. Yeah. Um, I, I was uh, Tammy's assistant for the first at least 10 years of our marriage. So I, I learned how to carve and do all that stuff, Yeah, uh, which set me up for all kinds of other things. <laughs> yeah. So when you're and when you open that little space and that's is it by the Taos Pueblo? Uh, it's it, yeah, it's the north. It was at that point the the North Pueblo entrance to the village. You could go by the Alsops, yeah, which was the south entrance, and then you could go to the north, which is right. Our house was on the corner. 
But it wasn't on Taos Pueblo land, was it? No, it bordered it. Ah, perfect. Per perfect. We, shared, we shared the fence. And that's where you so, grew up. Yeah, and also a lot of my, my homies are uh, from Taos Pueblo. I'm sure. I'm sure a lot of them are. Yeah, mm -hmm. so you set this little gallery up and you start selling primarily Tammy's work or did you nope. add new I, I, I understood right off the bat, I wasn't a caliber of a gallery to represent somebody like Tammy. Um, when, when I, when I first got really involved with Tammy, I, I, uh, realized that wholesaling her work was not the way to go right. and that for longevity's sakes, she needed to find galleries that would appreciate her and invest in her. And so I picked two, uh, one was, uh, Andrews Pueblo Padre, uh, Robert Andrews over there. Yep. And then the other one was with, uh, Lee Cohen and, uh, gallery 10. Yep. And uh, so we, we put her in there and I was happy to let that go was developing Blue Rain. Um, yeah, we didn't pick start representing Tammy until about 1997. Uh, Lee, Lee had passed away. And uh, it's funny, I had an argument with Lee in 1995 about the internet. And <laughs> I already had a difference of opinion going in a different direction of marketing right off the bat. So when he when he passed away, it was a short time after that we brought Tammy into Blue Rain, and and that's when we really exploded. Yeah. And so how did what what does the name Blue Rain or how did that come about? Well, you know, if you saw where Blue Rain started, there there's a beautiful Taos Mountain. Right. And at times when the rain clouds come over, that thing just turns blue and just the rain comes down. Uh, the other the other reason why is. Um, Mary Kane, her the interpretation of her native name was Blue Rain, mm. or one of one of her names was Blue Rain. So, out of respect and honor for her, we did that. Oh, that's very cool. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So in night, so you opened Blue Rain in nineteen ninety five. As far as ninety three with, with Tammy, though, I mean, oh, 90, 95, 96, yeah. probably ninety six would be my guess. And so at that time frame, when she comes on board, you've been doing it for like three years now. Who all did you start to get to put in? Had you, had you? Well, what, what happened? In, or was it just all? Well, three? we were, we were. We, I was a, a rinky dink man. I, I, I swear, my average ticket item was about two hundred dollars at that point. That was good. Um, yeah, <laughs> better than mine. Well, I think my first year I made like fifteen thousand dollars in the total sales. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> it was hard. I understand. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just a struggle because I, I never had investors. I didn't come from money. I just built it slowly one day at a time and so i only made fifteen thousand that year so it gave me a, a a line to go from from there uh trying harder and, and working but i'll tell you in 1995 uh, blue rain got a break and one of uh tammy's clients and a good friend of ours uh decided to downsize so they they gave us a collection of pottery that was well over 500 pots mm. and they represented the best of everything and uh and it, it gave me the confidence all of a sudden to take market share of that particular medium. And when, when Lee passed on, that, that was kind of like the starting block for me. But it took that collection coming in uh, to create that, that foundation. Yeah, I remember when you came on the scene with that kind of thing. And because uh, I knew Phil Cohen. And I, yeah. I actually spent one summer working in there you know with my own gallery you know he, mm -hmm. he needed the you know i guess the extra person to come in and bring more people to his gallery and so i said oh phil, phil had a lot of knowledge and he knew where all the collections were that yeah that his father had built yep but i remember when you came onto the scene and and, and it felt like you came onto the scene it felt like okay there's a new player that mm -hmm. and and there was <laughs> clearly <Yeah. laughs> did you yeah, feel like you were there did you have that like, yeah, I'm coming, baby. Look out. Well, um, you know, I didn't, I honestly, I didn't realize uh, what I had created. And in fact, it was around um, 2002, 2003, uh, Tony Abeda and, and Tammy approached me because they had been talking on the side and they, they wanted a bigger platform and they demanded that I open up in Santa Fe. And I'm like, why everything's selling out here at Taos? Why, why do we need to go to Santa Fe? Right. And I didn't, I didn't realize uh, the difference until I got to Santa Fe or what I had created uh, for the first time. Like in Lee's case, he was pretty much a pottery gallery with a couple of kachinas and a Paul Plitka and a couple of weavings thrown in. Right. 
the but Blue Rain was had become a dynamic monster without I with I didn't even realize because we were incorporated everything. It wasn't just a pottery gallery; it was a fine art gallery on the native spectrum. And so when we moved to Santa Fe, uh, I remember that first Indian market. My gosh, uh, we we probably had about fifteen thousand people come in in about three days. Yeah. yeah. And everything was red dotted. There was nothing left. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, it, it kind of caught me off guard. And when did that happen? What year was that that you came in? To- oh, that was around 2004, 2005. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I would have been, that would have been, I've been Santa Fe at that point for about eight years, I guess. I think I opened there in 96 or something like that. Yeah. And I could see it too. You know, it was like, okay, this is where you need to be for, connections at least at that bigger 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 money bigger collections bigger everything yeah exposure yeah and you were still in taos though at that first part right you had both galleries yeah right? i had i had both i had two ten thousand square foot showrooms at one time <laughs> yeah and that was crazy that was hard <laughs> and so when did you decide to not have the taos gallery anymore um uh, after the 15th year of Taos, I think by 17 years after Taos, we decided to go fully uh, Santa Fe only. Yeah. And then you had a gallery in Scottsdale for a while too, right? Yeah. For, for six years. You know, when, when I first came on the scene, uh, Scottsdale in the wintertime was like Santa Fe in the summertime. Yeah. Very vibrant. Galleries everywhere. You had Lavina Ole, you had Lou Ellen, Dean yeah. uh, Horwich, you had Gallery 10. You, you had a myriad of galleries. And they were selling. It was a very happening place. Uh, since that time to now, it's just, you know, it's not what it was. And it, it's not that you can't exist there. It just takes a lot more work. Um, I ended up closing because I, I went through divorce and pretty much had to take care of the, the girls. And I, I couldn't do everything. Um, I couldn't manage the place and, and, and take them to school or do this or that. So I just, I just chose to just close it down. Uh, we're thinking about reopening up, <laughs> but because I'm in a better place, all my girls are grown up now and uh, left the house. So, plus, you probably would like a nice winter in Scottsdale versus that's, that's exactly <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can speak to it because I did, you know, Santa Fe and, and Tucson for 20 years, and it takes a lot out of you. You don't get you just don't get downtime. No, you don't, you're always driving, or man, it, it, it's a lot of work, it is. Yeah, I mean, I I know from, you know, right now, I know what you're going through. You know, I'm surprised you have time to even do this. You probably don't actually have time to do this. Sometimes I don't. That's why I'm like, I do them when I do them. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much. Blue Rain, Blue Rain is still on a growth curve. Like, it, it's crazy. I can't even explain it. But uh, we, we grew about 25% of our best year ever last year. And this year's numbers are beating last year's numbers. So we're we're on a heavy growth cycle. What do you still. attribute that to? Uh, the corona. Uh, you know, most people in our age demographic on up stayed home. We didn't go out to eat. We didn't travel. So we just stayed home and got wealthier because our checks kept coming in. And uh, so when our governor decided to let go of the restrictions for travel into the state, it was just an explosion. Yeah. You know, and I, you probably, I don't know if you felt that in Arizona because you weren't to shut down as much, but when, when that floodgate was lifted, uh, my gosh, and it hasn't stopped. Yeah. Do you, um, you know, it's, it's interesting at that time though, when it first shut down, I mean, you lost an Indian market, completely lost one. And I remember thinking very much like, oh, wow, if I was in some one of these galleries position, I don't have Indian market, what the hell am I going to do? Especially with high rent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that had to be daunting and scary and everything. It was scary, but you know what I did? I was one of the few galleries in the state that um, I never closed. Uh, so Blue Rain had an Indian market without Indian market having Indian market. And it was still successful. Yeah. And uh, we, we decided not to let the virus... Uh, take us down and we're going to fight through it and keep on uh, surviving. And, you know, my, my staff bought into that too, because they understood it, it pertained to their livelihood as well. Yeah. So everybody bought in, we worked harder. Um, I think we were averaging 12 hour days during that time, everybody in the staff. 
And uh, boy, it, it really paid. When, when the floodgates were open, we were already ready. It's not like we're trying to get ready. <laughs> right. We, we were just ahead of the curve again um, for that process. Yeah. And you did some other things, I think, right? You started your podcast for one thing, right? Well, the podcast helped. And then we, we opened up Blue Ring Print Shop. Yeah. Talk uh, to me about uh, that. It's an interesting thing. How, how is well, it? it's um, it, it's something that I well because I I was thinking about especially our our younger up and coming art, artists who are one foot in a career of art and a, another foot trying to survive by having a job to pay bills, and uh, I I wasn't sure how long this was going to last. It was supposed to be two weeks. Remember, we just need two weeks. <laughs> it turned into almost two years, and so um, I had I had in two thousand. Uh, 2001 opened uh, a website, uh, blueringpitshop.com, and what we were doing was just replicating, making prints of originals. The problem was that people were buying the prints and they stopped buying the originals. So right. <laughs> I shut that one down. But so I'm sitting there in the middle of COVID, and um, some a lawsuit had finished in my head, and I was able to to think. And I was sitting down. I'm like, you know what? That that dot com is about to expire what do i do with it and so i'm like well let me rethink this and you know all these artists they they hold on to their copyrights like there's no tomorrow that's the most precious thing to them yet they don't do nothing with them until they're dead and then they wait for their heritage to figure it out and i was like why not figure out something to do now while you're alive right and uh so we created blue rain print shop to uh put their their imagery on anything you can think of, any type of product from A to Z. And that that really helped, especially the younger artists, because it didn't give them a lot of money, but like two or three hundred dollars extra a month, that was something. It was better than nothing. Yeah. Do you worry that it overexposes their art in a different form or fashion that takes well, that's, away from and that, well, that's a hesitation on some artists, and I understand why, uh, because they think it's gonna undervalue. Uh, but when it comes to marketing, it's it's cross marketing and it's benefited everybody. Uh, sales on all those artists that have participated in the print shop have gone up exponentially, not down. Mm. And what a so for you, really, I mean, having this, it's more about getting your artist's brand out there and exposure than it is actually the sales. I mean, because for Correct. you to sell a cup or a piece of luggage or whatever it is. That's in a way just kind of a pain in the ass, I would think. Yeah, well, I create it where it's not a pain in the ass, but right economically, as you're describing it, would be because it's not worth the time. Right. But it is. And I'll, the only thing I'll tell you is like when I when I started my gallery in, in Taos, like I told you, my average ticket item was two or three hundred dollars. Um, I had collectors that I hadn't seen that had bought stuff from me back then and then show up 20 years later and like, Hey, can I see that Tony Day turtle? I'm like, oh, you know, I haven't seen you. The last thing you bought was $300. This is right. a $150,000 piece. He's like, well, I'd like to see it. And I'm like, okay, pull it out. And he writes me a check. So you you can't underappreciate um, the value of farming. Uh, you got to lay your seeds for the future. And what better way than to get people involved in art in a very economic way uh, in the beginning? Because they will aspire to get an original yeah. as they grow up the economic ladder. So you use it as an entry point for a lot of people. Yes, yeah. it's very important, yeah. You know, I, I guess I kind of do the same, but not with the way you do it because we handle things that I've never been a person that said, well, I'm not gonna handle that because it's a hundred dollars. I have lots right. of pieces of, I just bought a ring for 20 bucks, you know? Right. And yeah. uh, you know, it's, I'm gonna sell it for 40 bucks. And right. is that good? Probably not. Probably lose money, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'll lose money actually. But it does get people the ability to associate with the gallery, to have something to start. And you're right. They can go from a $300 pot to $150,000, you know, Tony Day Turtle. Yeah. And I, I have, uh, I have plenty of examples of that. I have another collector I haven't seen for 20 years. And uh, in that 20 years, he became a billionaire from a thousandaire to a billionaire. Yeah. And uh, he has spent, you know, millions of dollars on us. Yeah. Um, so you can't discount the beginning of a journey. Yeah. Well, and that's also you being there, longevity and having ethics and, you know, doing your job and all that, you know, 
because he could yeah. have broken off and gone different ways all along. But you know, you kind of, if you think about it, you're growing the same way as he is. Maybe yes. not a thousandaire to billionaire, but it's still from right. a little shop in Taos, one room shop, to one of the leaders in the field. Well, as impressed as I am of their growth, they they are impressed by Blu-ray Gallery's growth. Yes. I believe that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're a brand, you're a national, international brand. That's no doubt about it. So how do you see that changing? I mean, you and I have both done this now for 30 years. How do you see your business changing at Blue Rain uh, over well, the next five you, years, let's just say? It, it would be easier to deal with deceased artists at this point <laughs> because <laughs> the dynamic of the market has changed so much into the social world to where if you don't deal with artists that are ethical or see a long-term picture it's it's hard to deal with them because uh social media provides direct format or direct contact so unless you have arrangements that are appreciated and honored uh you're you're gonna be battling uphill and it's changed that way uh so the artists that blue rain has are very hardcore with we uh that ethical part is very very important um, I still don't have contracts. I would, I, I'm old school. I do a shake by the hand. Um, but if you can't live by the agreement, then the arrangement is going to be short lived. Yeah. So the problem, yeah, we, we don't have contracts either and never have. And it's the same kind of thing. I figure if they're not happy, then they should leave. And if I'm not happy, then I should leave. And yeah. so, but the problem is that from a gallery point of view, and I, I have the same thing, is that you're competing with their own Instagram, Facebook, social media, plus I would assume the different museum shows that go on too, right? Well, yeah, I'll give you an example. We had a famous artist, we will not talk about names, but we, we'd spend 50 to 60,000 a year in advertising. Um, the last show we got was all wet, nothing signed. Uh, it was probably about a third the size of what we normally get. Uh, but turns out, there was a direct flow out of the studio, <laughs> you know, right. we're, we're Blue Rain's advertising this name and right. over and over for years and elevate, elevate, elevate. And yes, the artist is innovative. Uh, but when those ethics go downhill, what, what's the point? You know, it's just dysfunctional. So how do you deal with that? What do you do in the future with that? Because it's only well, getting more. Right? Well, I won't, I won't, I won't deal with people like that. And uh, they, well, think about it. Young artists come to me all the time and they're like, oh, I want to be, like uh, Tammy, I want to be like Preston Singletary, or I want to be like Tony Aveda. I'm like, well, you want to be like them, but you don't want to play by the same rules. You know, um, Tony Aveda hadn't shown an indie market for the last 28 years. It's just been gallery representation. Uh, Tammy, for the most part, until she said go back to market, I don't think that's been the best move for her. Preston has never gone through indie market. They're just gallerists. And in Preston's case, especially, he's been one of the most ethical people and honored that gallery relationship. And so it can be done. And 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 look what's happened to that guy. He's become a mega million dollar uh, artist, a force to be dealt with. Yeah. Um, you know, to get a, a huge exhibit at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. for a year, 10,000 square feet, that says a lot. But he, he got there by by living ethically and morally. And, and that's how we live. Yeah. So as I read you, it sounds like things will continue kind of the same way you're doing, but you just have to be very careful on who you select as an artist. Yeah, because we're, we're, when, we, when we deal with artists, we, we don't tell them, hey, you can't have social media. We're, we're, we're saying, you know, work with us so that we feel comfortable investing in you. Yeah. And it's reciprocated two ways. It's a two-way street. It's not, it's not one way. Uh, but they need that exposure. They need my contacts. They need my museum contacts. I think uh, if you ask Preston Singletary how many museums we've got him in, he, he probably couldn't even give you the list. It's too big. But that goes for a lot of artists. And how do you develop those kind of museum contacts? Over 30 years. Yeah, <laughs> same I mean, way you it's same way. I mean, you, you, I'm just curious to hear how you do it. I, um, it's, it's just, you know, uh, I've gotten to know most of the directors of, especially all the Western Heritage stuff, which you're familiar with, from Seth Hopkins to, <laughs> uh, well, the Herd Museum director, David, and uh, Denver. We know all these people, uh, Ludovic, 
Um, just when you meet them, you start talking, you have similar things. They come to the gallery, actually. They, they come to me and start talking to me and picking my brain. And before I know, we have a pretty good relationship. Well, you're a tastemaker too, right? I mean, you have the, you have a, a beat of what's going on in the world. With, with I, I try to, yeah. yeah. I think so. And, and not only, more specifically, I would even say to indigenous and Hispanic artists as well. I don't know if you feel that's true or not, but it seems like that's true. I've always had a, a love for for both of those communities. The the Hispanic devotional is something recently that we've been uh, dabbling in, uh, but I, I want to be more serious about it. But I I run into the same problem I do with the Native community, and and there there is this anti gallery uh, context that that flows in an undercurrent, and uh, and part of that's just like well, I don't want to share my profit, but. At the same time, they want to be famous. They're okay, well, we know how to do this. If you'll follow these rules, we can help you get there. Um, but I, I have the same hopes for the Hispanic devotional arts that we can help eventually elevate them. But uh, it's it's going to take a group of them to get together yeah. and start understanding those principles. Yeah, that's a hard one. Mm -hmm. That latter one, you know, because I yeah. kind of tried to do that myself. And it's, you know, it's a niche community at that yeah. point, you know. Oh, it's a very hardcore niche community. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you have the culture, your own culture, to go with it, which helps. Right. But yeah, I mean, it just takes somebody who believes in it. Yep. Yep. To throw the money at it and the time <laughs> and the energy oh, and the space. <laughs> and we have thrown a lot of money. I'm sure you have. <laughs> well, the yeah, we we at one point we're taking out all the back covers of every a magazine in the industry. That's kind of slowed down because. You know, the magazine industry has suffered like the galleries. They don't understand, but we're in the same boat in a way. Yeah. Um, but things are changing because of social medias and technologies. And if you don't adapt, you're going to fall behind. Well, I think if you look at the magazines now, you know, it used to be all galleries. And now it's more like all auction houses, artists doing their own, you know, advertising. And then some galleries that just have always been there, like you and me and some others. I mean, don't you think that's true? Well, the, the the biggest thing that has changed about magazines, and you can think about this because you started the same as I did. Uh, 30 years ago, a magazine would come in to ask for your business and they would show you an audited accounting of subscribers and amount published. And uh, now try to do that because I don't think it exists. And their distribution is fake because they're just doing it through mostly the galleries, not necessarily on the stands because people are not is tactile they're going through their phones yeah uh, or their computers and they're not they're not as tactile as they used to be so there's some legitimacy legitimacy lost there as well because uh when when these magazines who are on the border of flailing they're they're basically doing editorial based on advertorial not editorial it's not even legitimate anymore it's hard to get legitimate editorial, but that's also what's brought on these podcasts from your end and my end, because that's more legitimate editorial even it's dialogue, uh, but it's legitimate dialogue. Yeah, it is. It's not paid. Yeah, it's different. And it's more in depth for sure. Yeah. As long as people will take the time to listen to it. So Correct. and they do and they don't, but yeah. you know, it, it's interesting. I, I don't use mine as a, it's not something I do to, as a, brand enhancement whether it is or not it's just i actually just enjoy doing it mm -hmm. and i think i'm leaving something there for you know my well, Mark, legacy I think, I think you're a lot like me you know you, you have a lot of uh, history a lot of knowledge in, in these fields and it, it's important to get that information out uh people appreciate it and and some of them aren't going to listen for an hour or two hours but They'll, they'll, they'll pay attention for their segmented time, whatever that is. Yeah. Uh, but it's important that we, we have to get the messaging out. If you don't, you can't hope for a magazine to come to you and then they're going to hit you up for paying $2,000 for an ad. And then the words are just, I don't know, they're, they're mimicked from article to article. Right. <laughs> it's, uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> it's just not as legitimate as it used to be. It's different for sure. So what do you have? Because this will actually come out <clears throat> this next week, this uh, podcast. So tell me what you have going on in the gallery right now and through Indian markets. So if people are going to Santa Fe, 
that they can. Uh, well, this, uh, this this Friday we're opening up show for Dennis Siminski and oh, yeah. Billy Shank. So that's who, two people we both represent, and yeah, and they're good people, and that's the right reason. <laughs> they're they're fantastic. Yeah. They're innovative in their own ways. Um, that Billy, I just uh, have a lot of respect for him and his. Uh, well, talk about knowledge and fields, man. That guy is. Uh, yeah, he's interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and Dennis too. He Dennis comes more off the commercial end of yeah life, but uh, he's very talented. Uh, and is it going on I, at the same time the show? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, cool. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. fun because I know that you know, especially for Billy, he actually collects Dennis's work himself. Yes. So that it, that's a well. Actually, Dennis is staying at his house, so he didn't. Yeah. He, Dennis doesn't have to have a hotel. He just stays uh-huh. at Billy. <laughs> and then, so what do you have coming up the following for Indian Market? Do you have for a, for Indian Market? We we have obviously the the lineups of uh, Preston Singletary, uh, Jody Naranjo, um, Harlan Riano. Uh, we also have up and comers like Ryan Singer, uh, Navajo. I artists. love that guy's stuff. Oh yeah, I'm. I am dying to get more and more. You know, he's trying to finish up his uh, master's degree, and so we just have to be a little patient and let him finish some. Of I that actually, stuff. I actually got to tell you, I wanted to call him and see if he wanted to show, but I didn't want to step on anybody's footsteps, which I know are your footsteps. It, no, it's just hard to get work out because these guys are limited, and uh, yeah. he, he goes to school, so there's not that many paintings to fight over. Yeah, and uh, sometimes I, I see a painting, I just stash it in my collection because I I'm, get that's it. Just good. <laughs> like a stuff. And um, Chris Papan and uh, Star Hardridge, uh, we have a a young glass artist. Well, he's not that young anymore. He's been at it for a long time. But uh, Preston Singletary has been working with uh, another Clinket um, glass blower in Raven Sky River, and that's some beautiful work. He, they uh, Raven is. Uh, a master glass blower. I mean, he was the tail end of the William Morris yeah. uh, team, uh, but he's a master of marine uh, life in glass. Mm. Now you add Preston Singletary uh, imagery to that; it's just mind blowing. Uh, and that'll I mean, be the show at Indian Market. Those two together collaborate. Yeah, and then Dan Friday, and then uh, we'll have glass demonstrations with Preston and Dan. Uh, what is? Um, I'm going to talk to my producer. Well, what is that? That uh, Oh, yeah. So Dan Friday just coming off the series Blown Away. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, what What is it on? Netflix. It's on Netflix. What is and it? I don't know. It, well, it's a, it's a series of challenges, uh, kind of like, uh, what was that show? Project Run, Runway, like uh, Pat Michaels. Was oh, I know which one it is. I have seen it. It was very interesting. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. He was on Didn't that. I, yeah. Dan Friday was featured. He's he's one of our top class artists. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, so I'm I'm excited to and people can come and see him blow. Uh, he's a very humble man. Uh, been blowing glass for Del Chihuly for about twenty years, mm. at least. How you know? I've always wondered dealing. I don't really deal in glass, and one of the reasons is just shipping. <laughs> you know, I mean, you've got to have breakage. It has to happen. You know what, Mark? We 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 cracked a hundred fifty dollar, hundred fifty thousand dollar piece about six months ago. Yeah. I mean, you can do the best job you can do in the world, and it's still you can have these. You you just have to be very procedural. I'm not afraid of, of glass. Some of the stuff I ship, you'd freak out on. I mean, Kachina dolls have, have taught me how to ship. Yeah. But uh, you know what? Glass- Kachina dolls have taught me not to deal with <laughs> Kachina dolls. Yeah, I've been trying not to deal with Kachina dolls, but because I have such a history, they uh-huh. keep coming to me. Well, what I do <laughs> is, it, is I, I, I still deal in them, but I say, I actually say, if I ship them and they break, I'm not responsible. We recommend you picking them up. Yeah. And the other thing you can tell about Kachina dolls and collectors is breakage is part of the ownership and it does not devalue the piece. Yeah, I agree. So, yeah, I just get past that bump and you're OK. But but we we have a good record for the most part of shipping the most craziest dolls you could think of. Oh, I can but so glass, uh, as fragile as that can get. Uh, yeah, we're, we're good at packing that. Yeah. But even being great at it, sometimes it's. No, we still make we still make mistakes, and every now and then we we just everything is procedural. You know, if you follow the right procedures and you put those in place, and you honor those procedures, usually you're going to be okay. Yeah. If you take shortcuts or you're fast, you're gonna, you're asking for problems. Yeah, yeah, and that can happen around Indian Market when you've sold twenty objects and yes. you need to get them out, and everybody's calling and wants them out, and yes. it it can happen. 
Well, believe it or not, I, I still do uh, most of the shipping uh, myself. I mean, I have people that all, will help me, but uh, after Indian market, I'm like, everybody get out of my way. <laughs> That's how <laughs> I get think. this packed and get it out. Yeah. Well, I have the same person who's worked for me for over 20 years. So and they're good at it. I get out of his way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they know not to have me do any packing. <laughs> a big mistake on that end. So anything <laughs> else that you want to talk about or say before we kind of wrap it up? And No, I just, I, I want to um, tell you how much I appreciate you and, and, and care for what you're doing and love what you've done. And, and thank you for doing that for our art community and your, your love for the, for the Native American community. And, and um, it, it's, it's wonderful to talk to somebody who has a shared yeah. connection in, in that direction. And uh, Maynard Dixon, going back to BYU, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. All so, those paintings that were in there. Yeah, yeah he, he sold them in 1937 for $3,700, 85 pieces. <laughs> there's a couple mm. of them that are worth over a million and a half alone oh at least at least uh -huh. did you and, get and, to and, see those growing up when you were in BY, did, byu were you interested in I, any of that you know i i i i heard about the byu art school and and uh there's some students that are they're coming out of there so i went to go see uh some which is sean didaker and ben mcpherson and justin taylor um and when I went to go see their exhibit, I, I ended up having to see some of the collection of the Maynard Dixons. I was shocked. And I, I, it was at that time I learned that that was the largest Maynard Dixon yeah. collection. <laughs> yeah. Which shocked me. I didn't, I did not realize that. Oh yeah. That's an homage. I think Dixon just wanted the, you know, it wasn't as much as a money thing, even though 37 clearly was, you know, just preservation. Yeah. They were coming out of the, you know, depression, but he wanted his stuff to be somewhere, right? And he liked the Mormon community. He liked them. Yeah, you know, it was a, it, he. He found a place that would preserve his his heritage and yeah. his legacy, right? Yeah. And I, I think, and I, I, when we're talking like Aaron Courier and and Tia collection, I, I see the same type of relationship that maybe Maynard saw with with BYU that we see with Tia collection because you get in that it's always on loan. Yeah, uh, to museums throughout the world, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, no, it's an amazing, uh, <laughs> that organization that they've done is just crazy. Yeah. No, Laura, Laura is uh, redirected. And uh, of course, I, I can't talk about who the Tia collection guys, but they, they're they a great team. And uh, I, I like that he brought her in and uh, she reformatted and, and redirected. Yeah. In a good way. Yeah, no, I mean, that's an amazing collection. And I'm sure you can almost find anywhere in a, in somewhere in America, one of the their collection is being loaned and given out yes yeah it's a beautiful thing wonderful well Leroy thank you so much yes I've always felt you and I were kind of kindred spirits that we had kind of a similar path and trajectory and saw the world kind of the same way and you know um, and it's fun to be able to actually get to take the time <laughs> to, to talk to you and I enjoy I know we could talk we could talk like this without this, but yeah. <laughs> so we'll we could enjoy this in a natural state. <laughs> yeah, well, the next time you come down to Tucson, we can do that. Or I go up oh, to yeah. Santa Fe. So, you can always come to Santa Fe and uh, we can hang out. And, uh, yeah, no, I think we'd have a... I'm surprised we haven't done something together, actually, co-branded. It's because as dealers, we live in a box. Yeah. And getting out of our box is hard. That's true. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've talked to more dealers through my podcast than people that I've known for, you know, 30 years. Yeah, like this. I mean, you know, we've never sat down and talked for an hour. We've, you know, right. talk on the phone and we talk here and there, but, you know, you're, I'm usually, when I call you, there's, it's a business related, you know, yeah. usually yeah. me asking you a question. What do you think? What is this? Right, right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Mark, again. Uh, you're a very kind person. Thank you. It's not, it was lovely having you on. Please listen to Blue Rain podcast too. It's interesting. There are a few artists there I may have to re-interview because I just find them so interesting. You know, it's uh, it's one of the few podcasts I actually do listen to a lot because I find yeah. the artists on there to be unique individuals. So, and, and this it's the stories, right? So yeah, it is. we'll add this story to it. Thank you <laughs> again. I won't be in, in the end market this year. Unfortunately, I haven't given a lecture on Maynard Dixon. <laughs> at the russell museum Surprise. so I, have I saw that i saw that in the catalog that's yeah, nice. i have to be there so well, good good luck with that yeah it's the first one i've missed in like 30 over 30 years 
Wow. Yeah, it's really, it's a heartbreaker. I even went to Indian market in 2020, even though there wasn't an Indian market. You know, it was just a seat. It was weird. There was just no. It was nothing there. Yeah, it was so <laughs> odd walking yeah. on, you know, on Indian market weekend and being down. It was a ghost, ghost town. It was a ghost town. It was yeah. very odd. But this year it's going to be an absolute It's going to be crazy. Yeah. Be crazy. Yeah. We're ready. Bring yeah. it on. I know. You'll have <laughs> I will not have to deal with that. So, yeah. Right. Smart. Well, Leroy Garcia, Blue Rain Gallery, thank you so much. And uh, you, we'll, we'll talk soon. All right. Later, brother. All right. Bye-bye.